0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Okay. It is Tuesday, uh, October the 25th, 2022. Yesterday, we did a show on bad Jews with the writer Emily Tamkin, but we're not dealing with bad Jews today we're dealing with good Jews or at least rich successful Jews Jewish families we've done a number of shows on remarkable Jewish families international families we did one with Daniel Gross a couple of weeks ago on Edmund Safra one of the great bankers according to uh uh, Gross, the greatest banker of the 20th century. Uh, he has a new book out, A Banker's Journey, How Edmund Safra Built a Global Financial Empire. Uh, Safra was uh, originally, I think, from Aleppo in Syria. Um, and Aleppo will come up in our conversation today. We also last month did a show with Andrew Mayer, uh, has a, an enormously significant and physically significant new book on on the Morgenthau's, a very powerful, influential and wealthy American banking family. Originally uh, from Europe, um, one of the most distinguished Morgenthau's was Henry Morgenthau, who was FDR's secretary uh, of the Treasury, very influential in uh, China policy and Middle Eastern policy. Um, and in terms of uh, the Morgenthau's, we discussed with Mayer the idea of the ethic of responsibility that comes from great wealth. We are back with very powerful Jewish families from the Middle East uh, with the Sassoons, um, the great global merchants and the making of an empire. They were or are known as the, the Rothschilds of the Middle East by some people, and uh the book is just out, came out yesterday. It's already getting great reviews. Uh, and who should write a book on the Sassoon's? No less than a Sassoon. Joseph Sassoon uh, is talking to us from a hotel room in New York City. Uh, Joseph, congratulations on the book.
1: Thank really you very much. Getting Thank uh, great reviews.
0: You. Uh, Thank you. You, uh, you had a celebration of the book's launch last night. Uh, if... For the Morgenthau's, the principle of this long, complicated story is the ethic of responsibility. Is there a one-liner to summarize the Sassoon's, Joseph? I think a global family,
1: um, immigrant family, refugee family, I think any of those can sum it up. They fled their hometown, Baghdad, in 1832. They settled in Bombay, then expanded to Shanghai, then England. Um, so it was really part and parcel of the globalization that was sweeping the globe, um, the whole world in, in the 19th century and early 20th century.
0: They weren't, though, like so many migrants. And and, and you're involved at uh, Georgetown University with the Institute for the study of international migration so you're much you're, you're much more knowledgeable about uh, the politics and economics of migration than i am but they weren't victims of migration they shaped this world to what extent is the world we're living in today uh, joseph a world built by your relatives by your ancestors the Sassoons?
1: well as it happens right this now it's not really a lot because the story is about the rise of, of a dynasty and the demise of the dynasty. Why, in certain parts of the 19th century, they adopted technology, new changes. Uh, they were they understood the changes that were taking place in India, Africa, Asia in general, Europe. Um, they did not understand the changes after World War One, and they really missed out on a lot of things. They didn't realize some of the trading in commodities such as cotton and opium, that it's not a, long, a good way to keep going on. I think they didn't diversify enough. For example, there were some families that worked with them in India that diversified into heavy industries, and they misread the political scene in India and in China, totally.
0: And the cost was huge. weren't unusual there. Very few people could see into the future. One of the things that I'm most curious about families, great families like the Sassoon's, is they seem to almost predate networks of the 21st century. How did they all stick together? Was there just this familial loyalty did it come with religion with ethnicity with language i know they even had their own kind of secret language that that you can read which enabled you indeed to write this book yeah i mean it
1: is you you point out correctly one of the most fascinating aspects of that period is networks and the networks was not just family david Sassoon, the founder of the dynasty had 14 children spreading them around Asia and the Middle East and then later in Britain, obviously helped in the sense that you have people whom you can trust. But the network was not just family members. It was merchants, it was agents, it was all kinds of people that were literally scattered around the globe. And this is, to me, one of the fascinating things. You know, there are obviously no telephone, no internet. Telegraph just came in the 1860s. Um, but yet, in news traveled. Uh, your reputation, wherever you were in Asia, in Africa, in Europe, preceded you. And it is really, truly remarkable. And hence, David Sassoon kind of literally, his mantra was reputation, reputation, reputation. You can lose in a business, you can lose your investments once, twice, thrice, it doesn't matter. But reputation, you have only one chance and one chance only for the whole family. You lose it, good luck ever getting it back. Um, And that helped them. So they had this sound reputation for almost 140 years of operation, and it did help
0: in setting up the network. Is reputation the same as decency, Joseph, or did reputation require buying into the aristocratic ethic and the aristocratic networks of the age? Certainly um, the book deals with the way in which the Sassoons became uh, more British than the British in some ways in terms of their embrace of the British aristocracy. Was there a distinction in their minds between... Reputation and decency?
1: I mean, not really about where you are from and who you are. I think the reputation, especially among global merchants, not just the Sassoon's at the time, was can we trust the counterpart? And one of the fascinating things to me, going through the archives of 140 years of the family, There wasn't once the question that between family members, should we deal with X um, because of his religion or sect or identity? Never, ever that question was raised. The question was always, can we trust our counterpart? Is he going to pay or is he sending the merchandise as promised? That's what they really cared and like our world today where we you know pigeonhole and 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 compartmentalize everyone into their nationality and sect and religion um, so the aspect of of their aristocracy doesn't come up really as a main aspect of being part of the network it was the reputation of being a good merchant paying on time and uh, a you know your word was your bond.
0: that was the reputation so there was such a thing perhaps as a a Sassoon handshake if if you shook the hand of a Sassoon you could trust them not all the critics I mean obviously they're a controversial family some of the some of the criticism comes from within um the the great poet Siegfried Sassoon um the war poet uh, describes his family, he said, they made it in the East by dirty trading, uh, millions and millions of coins. Did, um, did Secret Sassoon have a point, you think, in terms of this dirty trading? I didn't even know what he really means by dirty trading.
1: Yeah, well, I'll come back to that. But I, I, I think before that, it's interesting with the Sassoons, unlike European um, companies in the East, they never signed contracts. Um, it was always just your word, your commitment. And that was enough on both sides. And overall, it proved correctly. I guess I don't know what he really means by it. I mean, Siegfried Sassoon was not exactly representative. He had, um, He never knew who he was. Uh, He was in denial about his origins of being from Baghdad, his origins of being Jewish. Uh, He didn't discover who he was until age 13 when his father died. And suddenly um, his father was buried in a Jewish cemetery. And he says in his memoirs that weird people uh, chanting weird language uh, was burying my father. Um, I guess part of the trade that later on was looked down, and he, by the way, never wrote against it, was the opium trade. But here is really a point that needs to be looked, not in the 21st century uh, eyesight, but really more from the point of view of the mid 19th century. Let's, you know, and I'm not trying to defend, by the way, the trade. I am very critical of the family towards the end of the 19th century. But still, to put it in perspective, opium was a legal commodity. The the Financial Times, the equivalent of the Wall Street Journal, every day uh, presented prices of the commodity, no different from gold or silver or any currency. Until 1907, you could go to any pharmacy in New York or Paris or London and say you have a headache or indigestion and the pharmacist will recommend some opium for you. So it needs to be seen within that. The British saw it just as a commodity that is part of the free trade um, ideology that prevailed at the time. And the Sassoons and others, uh, including you, British merchants and Swiss merchants and European merchants, Chinese merchants, Indian merchants, so it's no different from trading in tea or silk or rice. Did they ever trade in slaves, the Sassoons, or no, was no. slavery just
0: beyond the pale, so to
1: speak? No, that was really not one mention in the archives. And I think by the time in the 1830s, none of that existed, at least not in India.
0: Uh, I mentioned Morgenthau, Henry Morgenthau at the beginning, Secretary of the Treasury, very influential in China policy. You mentioned the, the first opium war. The, the Sassoons moved, or some of the Sassoons moved, from their their, their original base in, in the Middle East, in the Ottoman Empire, to China. How influential were the Sassoons in early 20th century China. Uh, I know that they seem to have uh, had a particular influence on 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 Shanghai uh, in terms of their investments, their success, and their contribution to the the civic beauty and significance of the city.
1: Yes, I mean, they're really, they had an influence just as a traders. I think the real change takes place in the 1920s when Victor Sassoon moved from India to China. And uh, he brought a company uh, of engineers from Manhattan, and he built the first skyscraper, which, by the way, it still exists in the main street in Shanghai called the Bund. Um, And it's now a hotel. I think it's the Fairmont Hotel. It's a beautiful building with um, stunning views of the bay. he proceeded to build other buildings. He was the first probably of building what we see in the U.S. today called condos, um, that or service apartment for people staying longer than a few weeks in a city. Um, he changed. I mean, at the, he changed the scene for Shanghai. Uh, To give you an idea, when everything was nationalized in 1914, uh, 1949, apologies, um, he and his firm lost 14 buildings that was nationalized. And that was part of the demise because all those buildings gone uh, with zero compensation.
0: They didn't get communism. They didn't read the tea leaves correctly, although they weren't alone in that sense.
1: Not at all. And I think part of the problem of Victor Sassoon, he befriended members of the Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalists, and he misread it. Then he even misread the Leafs after the end of World War II, where it was obvious that the communists will be taking over. He kept saying and writing that the communists are not going to close China. They need foreign trade. They need foreign currency. And he will be there to provide that and bridge between the Chinese and the Europeans and the American. Well, that was
0: another mistake. Another city they had a great influence on was, it's now called Mumbai, but originally known as Bombay. Um, What was unique about the Sassoon's involvement in in Bombay uh, in in, uh, India?
1: Well, it's interesting. Unlike, I think, China, David Sassoon really believed that Bombay made him, um, and he saw it as his home. And what is really interesting, when he died in 1864, in his will, he stated that the house um, in Bombay should not be sold for 51 years. And I, reading between the lines, He wanted his children to stay in Bombay and live in the house. Um, The house is a huge, beautiful one that today uh, serves as a hospital in uh, the heart of the city.
0: We did a show with uh, William Dalrymple. I'm sure you're very familiar with his work. uh, The great Anglo-Indian historian on British policy in the Middle East, uh, in India, his book, The Anarchy, the East India Company, yes. violence and the pillage of an empire. What role did the Sassoons play in the East India Company? And were they part of the pillaging or were they victims
1: or both? Well, they weren't allowed to trade as foreign traders until 1858. I mean, that's where part of the fortunes, you know, I argue in the book, it's not good enough to be a good trader and opportunistic. You have to be also fortunate to be at the right time, at the right place. David Sassoon was at the right time because the East India Company was losing its power, and by 1815, 1858, it was disbanded, and then the British uh, rule took over. It's very interesting, when he signed the oath of allegiance to the British sovereign. He had to sign an allegiance also to the East India. And coming from the Ottoman Empire, he never really comprehended. What do you mean signing oath of allegiance to a company? But they were controlling it. Remember that in in the 30s and early 40s, he really was a very, very small trader. And I think that's what is really also interesting in the story that there wasn't a one event or trade that made David Sassoon build a huge dynasty. It was it- step by step by step. So, you know, he was not really impacted by the East India Company. It was losing power. And as I just said, by the
0: 1858, it, it, was, it stopped operating. Is David your favorite Sassoon? I mean, there was, of course, Joseph Sassoon, the in some ways the founder of the dynasty, going to Aleppo. There's uh, Elias Sassoon, very uh, very smart businessman who created a hundred billion dollar fund. Apparently, uh, is, you've mentioned David several times. Is he your favorite, Joseph?
1: Not really. Um, the person who really struck me, and and I devote a whole chapter for is um, uh, Farha, who changed her name to Flora Sasu. Um, I think one of the things that came out, she was the only woman running a global uh, company in the late 19th century. There were a lot of matriarchs at the time in Europe and the United States, but not a CEO running on a daily basis a global company. Company And the business became very complicated by the 19th, end of 19th century. Um, I also kind of a little bit identified with her in the sense that what really made me angry when I was researching how all the men in the, in, 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 in the family conspired against her kept saying, how can a widow with three children run a global business? instead of saying how amazing it is that she succeeded and took them to new levels. Um, And at the end of six years of shenanigans and conspiracies, they succeeded in pushing her out. And I argue that that was the beginning of the end of one part of the Sassoon's David Sassoon and Co, because there were by the 1867 two competing companies.
0: Is there a historical culture that somehow captures, or a historical moment, a, a type of system that captures the Sassoons? The New York Times review of your book, which was glowing, um, and talks about it as a, a marvellous yarn, an Ottoman art crowd. Um, was there something, even though they left the Ottoman Empire, was there something uniquely Ottoman about the Sassoons, which explains their rise, but also their fall? I think that what really distinguished the first and
1: second generation with all the identifying with the British and the colonial policy is that deep down they knew who they were, Baghdadi Jews. That was their identity. That was their pride. That was their um, anchor. I think the third and fourth generation lost that identity. I'm not sure about the Ottoman. There were continuation. Baghdad really was the home, spiritual home, religious home. This is the home where they recruited young talented families to come and work for them because they could read and write the Baghdadi Jewish dialect in which they corresponded. So Baghdad was really the beacon that kept them going on. I think that once they lost that connection and tried to be, as you pointed out, more British than the British, that was be- the beginning of the demise.
0: Your, your, your day job is as a professor of history at uh, Georgetown University. You've written a number of books about the Middle East, particularly on Iraq. Is that coincidental, Joseph, or is somehow... For you as a Sassoon, is Iraq in the blood?
1: Well, I mean, I still, look, I was born in Baghdad. I, one of the things that I found very touching that David Sassoon fled Baghdad in 1830 in the middle of the night and had nothing. And I, my family and I fled when I was a teenager in the 1970s in the middle of the night and took with us absolutely nothing. So from that point of view, Yet Baghdad is an important aspect, of, you know, whether it's the food, whether it's the language, whether it's the attitude. I, came, I was the first academic to be allowed to look at the archives of Saddam Hussein's regime, which were taken out of Iraq to the U.S. And it, for me, it was really an incredible, amazing thing to be able to look At the archive of an authoritarian regime that was um, almost really obsessed about documenting everything. There is a lot of similarity to the Stasi in East Germany or even before of writing down everything. So there were millions and millions of the documents. Yeah, I mean, I wrote about authoritarianism in the Arab world, but obviously I am considered, I guess, to a certain extent, an expert on Iraq.
0: It's interesting that you mention Saddam Hussein's regime, writing everything down, comparing it to the Stasi documentation. It's the reverse model to the Sassoon's. It's the reverse of the handshake of trust. These were profoundly untrusting networks which probably accounted for their failure. What is the, if you like, the Sassounist take on that catastrophe of of Ba'athist authoritarianism in Iraq, which drove you out? And of course, the country lost great minds, great resources, great expertise.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It is really, I never thought about it, but you're absolutely correct. It is the, the exact opposite, because the mantra of Saddam, don't trust anyone, not your family. Look, his, his daughters, whom he adored, and his, their families all fled and betrayed him. And so he became even more obsessed about just proving that you should not trust anyone. He really did not. Not a brother, not a son, not a family member, and definitely not someone in the regime. It was the exact opposite, as you pointed out, within the family, but also with the networks. I mean, you know, there is... Wonderful, for example, correspondence between Abdullah, who became later on Sir Albert, with a trader in Isfahan, Iran. They never met, but a friendship developed over 30 years uh, just by corresponding. And when you read it, you think, wow, this is wonderful. These two men never met, then, but suddenly now from trading and business, that they're telling stories about their families. And when one of them gets sick, the other one sends him a gift and and wishes him well. And I think it's really, this is what attracted me in the book versus the modern authoritarianism, which is the
0: exact opposite. I wonder if that trust is also the foundation of Democracy. We did a show with Shadi Hamid. Uh, uh-huh. I'm, sure, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with his work yes. he's at the Brookings Institute up the road from you at Georgetown. Um, he has a new book out, The Problem of Democracy, dealing with the crisis of democracy or the absence of democracy in the Middle East. Um, is trust the foundation of democracy? And in that sense, might the Sassoons, have they stayed in Iraq, been helpful builders in democracy, which of course is still lacking in spite of all the billions of dollars spent on invading the country.
1: Yeah, I mean, once the invasion took place, it was really, I mean, you know, it's downhill all the way and you're, you know, we're approaching 20 years next March and and the country is in an utter mess, but it was also in an utter mess and a disaster under 35 years of Saddam Hussein. So the Iraqis uh, did not that. Could they have stayed? Maybe. I think politically the whole Middle East changed after 48 and the creation of Israel. Remember, if you look at the history of Iraq in the 1920s, 30s, for example, the first uh, treasury secretary or minister of finance was Jewish. Uh, there were a lot of Jews in parliament, in government, in, in public life, in, in in the Supreme Court. All that came in an, uh, to an end in 1948 um, with comparing and making every Jew a Zionist. And that really changed. So I don't think if had they stayed that they would have changed the face of Iraq. I think I... In the book I mention it, had they stayed in India in the 1920s, I think their lot would have been much better than packing and going to China. And Victor Sassoon was in New York when the news came that uh, the communists took over all China and that they have entered his building. And he said, um, I left India, but China left me. And it's a great sentence because it really sums up everything that he did.
0: Yeah, it's a sort of, uh, there's a, an element of sort of rom- romantic nostalgia about that. It's interesting, um, Joseph, you bring up uh, Israel. Uh, in my conversation with Daniel Gross, one of the striking things he told me about Edmund Safra was that he never foot, set foot in Israel until he was very, very old. He had no association with Israel. What were the, and, and you mentioned that 1948 was a really important year in the history of the, the Sassoons, with the creation of the state of Israel and the transformation of Jewish identity from a kind of globalism or internationalism to a, 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 to, to, to a Zionism. What were the Sassoons' attitude to Israel? Were they Zionist? Were they ambivalent? Did they understand how ultimately dangerous Zionism and the, the modern state of Israel was to the idea of this global network of trading family?
1: No, 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 no. They were not Zionist at all. Um, none of them was went to Palestine or later on to Israel. I think there is a a few Sassoon's that uh, moved there in the 1970s, uh, so much, much later. By then, there was, of course, no dynasty and no family business. They went into their own capacity. Um, They also, uh, although very philanthropic, uh, both in India, China, Japan, Britain, um, they really did not give money. To the Zionist cause, and every time they use the um, whether it was an excuse or real, but I think it was real that they will give philanthropy and charities only and only to places where they are doing business or they have workers, uh, whether it's schools or hospitals or all kind of uh, uh, you know there is the Sassoon Library, for example, today in Bombay. Um, all these things only in the cities and towns that they uh, live. So, no, I, there have been no connection. Of course, the demise of the Sassoon took place before forty-eight. I think, in general, definitely one part of the family was one way going down, um, and of course forty-nine because of China, rather than because
0: of the Middle East, that the end was nigh um the Morgenthals, of course as talked to beginning of the show were very distinguished Ashkenazi Jewish family this the, the Sassoons seemed to epitomize a, a Sephardic Jewish identity what what sense did they make of the fate of European Jewry or was this something that I mean obviously they were outraged and shocked like everybody else but I'm assuming that it was in an odd way foreign to them. What happened to the Jews of Europe?
1: Um, There was, you know, remember Shanghai and China in general were very, very generous uh, to the Jews of Europe. In fact, if you look at it, by 1940-41, and, you know, Ken Burns in his recent documentary about the Holocaust, China was the only country that opened its doors to the Jews, and particularly Shanghai. And there is a lot of books and articles about how Shanghai, in a way, saved the life of forty to 50,000 immigrant Jews coming from uh, Germany, Austria, um, other places, because the world was close to them. Um, Victor Sassoon is a very wealthy uh, person still contributed a lot and helped. And one of the nice things of doing these book talks, um, I did a virtual one last week in New York and someone emailed me and told me that um, his father was an immigrant uh, in Shanghai uh, staying and sponsored by Victor Sisu. Um, in the other writings, there is little. I mean, they are very disturbed by the war Um I remember also, I mean, Victor Sassoon was in the British Army. So um, in World War One and World War II, in both wars, uh, a lot of the young Sassoons who have become British lost their lives.
0: Yeah, and of course, there's Secret Sassoon who wrote poetry about it's the really war. Uh, you know, that was an interesting review of your book. I don't know if you read it by Pratina Van in the Los Angeles uh, book review. Yes, I did. Uh, It it likes the book, but it it takes a broader, more critical view of of what they call imperial globalization, mentions Piketty and many of the other critics of global capitalism. Were the Sassoon's, and I use this word carefully, responsible in part at least for the building of of what uh, he describes as imperial capitalism?
1: I think it's a little bit of an exaggeration to be honest. I mean no, I don't think so. The system was much much bigger than them. Remember that Britain had a very clear policy in the 19th century, free trade free trade. Um, and and part of the reasons that the Sassoons were accepted as immigrants in Britain is this new um Manchester School where the Prince of Wales was part of it, where it acted on liberal ideas that even immigrants who are talented can be part of the new Britain. I I don't think so. I mean, there are a couple of points in that review I also uh, uh, disagree with, Um, but I think in general, again in in uh, towards the b- by the World War two really apart from what they had in China their influence was negligible um, they were never in the US um, they, they were never in Latin America there were a lot of talks about doing expanding in these things but I I think overall the real uh, decline begins uh, almost in the 1920s and early 30s except the part in china
0: well it's a wonderful story joseph congratulations um Thank you. incredible achievement um the Sassoons, the great global merchants and the making of an empire i hope ken burns will turn it into a documentary it's already getting glowing reviews i mean even people I mean, they're not critical. Like the, the the Los Angeles Book Review review, it wasn't really critical. It was just analyzing the Sassoon. Stars. It's great stuff. Congratulations on the book. Thank We're still waiting for, uh, you know, there's a, uh, uh, I think a, a Hindu British Prime Minister announced yesterday. Maybe one day there'll be a Sassoon Prime Minister. We're still <laughs> waiting for that. But everything else, the Sassoons seem to have achieved. The most global of globalizing families india china iraq the united kingdom the united states uh, where joseph is talking to us from so congratulations on thank on you book, very uh, much. joseph and finally um you must have read enormously widely for this book as well as done a, a huge amount of archival research what else are you reading these days for fun what do you enjoy what would you recommend to our viewers and listeners
1: So recently I read two different books. I read a book which is, I think, an old classic called All for Nothing by Walter Kempowski. And it describes really in detail. You know, you read hundreds of books about World War II. Never really the life of civilians in Germany in 1945. And he picks up these towns and describes the lives and the bombings and everyone trying to escape and the lack of reality, you know, information. Very, very powerful and moving book. Uh, That really, rightly, the New York uh, review of books made it one of the classics. The other one that I have not finished, but I am towards the end, and I'm really enjoying it. By the Nobel Prize winner uh, 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 Amartya Sen, um, he, he won the Nobel Prize in Economics and he wrote the first volume of his memoir and it's called "Home in the World. Um, what he really describes so beautifully? his life in India, in what is later on becomes Pakistan because the family is in, in Bengal. Um, And the day-to-day, the going to schools, the relationship with the family, um, just really takes you back to that period of the 1930s in a very vivid way.